the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome to a special In Conversation Time Tunnel episode. My guest is veteran reggae singer, very well known for his very silky vocals, Mr. Mike Anthony. Anthony, welcome to my podcast series. Thank you very much, sir. So how are you keeping? What you been up to? Um, just trying to keep myself very busy doing my vocal exercises, doing my little strength in a core exercise. Just trying to keep yourself occupied, really. That, that there's no time to mess around and just lounge around and watch Netflix. Just trying to keep yourself motivated and busy. So you say vocal exercises. Are you still singing then? Never stop. Always singing, no matter what I can do. So, Mike, where did you grow up? I grew up in South London, Peckham. I was originally born in England, born in South London, in New Cross, and then my father changed and went to Peckham, and that's predominantly where I lived all my life. Well, you've been singing for many, many years. What inspired you to become a singer, especially in the reggae field? I think it was the collection of the music that our parents brought back from the Caribbean. Also the collection of music that they brought while they were here in England. So my father was a collector of music, jazz, reggae music, pop, everything. And when we used to enter into that front room, that sacred front room, when it used to open up and the music that used to be unleashed on me, it just had a, an enormous effect. I just knew straight from the gut, straight from the get-go that that's what I wanted. I wanted to be one of these guys that I heard coming out of my front room. You started out with Viking Sound System. And then you started guesting with the legendary Saxon sound system. Successful artists who came from Saxon include Maxi Priest, Tipper Ari and Smiley Culture. How did you start working with Saxon? Saxon was a relatively easy thing to do because at that particular time, if you were a singer and you had a reputation, you were able to go from sound system to sound system. I mean, we used to have dances on a Friday night, Saturday night and Sunday night. So being that I'm from South London, and Saxon sound was in Lewisham, I'm in Peckham. It was no problem that when my sound wasn't playing on a Saturday night, I'd go straight to Lewisham and find out where the Lyra's sound system was. And those guys knew me, I knew them, and they would give you the opportunity to come and sing on their sound system. It was absolutely no problem. I mean, those were really good times. I mean, I don't see those times happening again for a long time, but it brought a lot of talent to the forefront. When did you first perform in public with Saxon? I would say it was in the early 80s. Tipper Irie had already had his success. He, he, he had already launched his career. Smiley Culture had already launched his career. Maxi Priest had already launched his career. So it was probably towards the late 80s, coming into the 90s, when Saxon Sound had already established their artists. And uh, I can't remember exactly what dance it was, but there are tapes circulating all over the place. I'm sure some collectors are selling those tapes right now. <laughs> as we I'm sure they are collectors' items. You mentioned some very well-known artists there. Who have you performed with in terms of events? I would say there's probably nobody in this country who was prolific at that time, up and coming at that time, that 
I would say we as a collective, because I, I consider myself as part of the reggae industry, that we haven't performed. We've all performed with each other. And whether these were local grown artists or they were international artists, the list, it just goes on and on from Maxi to Tipper to Smiley to whoever they are. I mean, international artists, I could go on and on and on with Ferris Hammond, Daryl Wilson, Josie Wales. It just goes on and on and on. And even international American artists like Jodeci, the list just, just, just goes on. Because your, your career starts off as a support act before you become an established artist yourself. So you're going to have these shows where you're supporting the likes of great artists. And I call them great artists. When did you record your first track and what was it called? My first track was recorded in the late 80s on the merger record label by a producer called Barry Bourne, a.k.a. Paul Robinson, who had various success hits by himself with a group called One Blood and was also inspirational in making Maxi Priest's career rise to an even greater higher length. So, yeah, Paul Robinson had a merger record label and we recorded late 80, 88, 89 and the first track was called Open Your Heart. That was the very first one. We did about three or four tracks within that same year. Open Your Heart, Crash Crash, Glide Gently, Cruising in Love. And I think Open Your Heart was the very first one that we released. Well, in fact, Open Your Heart is one of my favourite tracks. You have recorded over 50 songs in your time as a singer including crash crash glide gently cruising in love open your heart still your number one which is one of my favorites as well which one of those tracks is your favorite and why um i think when people say to me over 50 tracks i did some research for myself and there's more than 50 there's more than 60 more than 70 more than 100 there were tracks that haven't even been listed but when it comes to singing i've learned never to have a favorite i put them in categories of which one gave me the most enjoyment singing and which one gave me the most difficulty singing and that's how i kind of rate them so all of them i love and there are some that i really enjoyed singing more than others i think when it came to actually recording still your number one open your heart and sexy eyes really remain a good memory for me of occasions when you go into the studio and everything just comes together you don't have to worry whatsoever your mind is focused your vocals are on point red light you record there's no double take it's just all done in one take so those kind of stand out for me and i can't even put them in a position to say well which one comes first so all of them well you mentioned sexy eyes isn't that a cover version uh dr hook Ah, you see, I do know a little bit about music myself, Mike. <laughs> I know that, I know. <laughs> so, you've covered soul tracks in your singing career. How do you choose a particular soul track to cover into reggae? My way of doing a cover version is to... I look at all cover versions as just stories. Many artists will cover exactly the same song. But can you tell that story in your own way? And a song will just reach out to you. It would just come from nowhere. You'll listen to this song and it's been done and done and done by so many people. But for some reason, the song is just reaching out to you in a particular way that you think to yourself, hmm, you know what? I could really do something with this song and take it to a different level. And that's what you set out to do, to tell the story, but tell the story your way. So when it came to doing certain tracks, they just talked to me. 
I didn't even have to worry. A certain song would just be there. The producer would say, look, I kind of hear your voice on this. And you begin to hear yourself singing the song. And that's kind of how it is with me. Never the most popular song. It could be the most obscurest of songs, but the song has to reach out, gravitate with me that I can say, you know, I'm going to take this story and I think I can do something with it. Well, back in 1991, you topped the reggae charts for quite a long time with your cover version of David Ruffin's Walk Away From Love. Why did you pick that particular one? That was a challenge. That was a challenge from my sound system. They said to me that over the years, so many artists have covered this song. We don't think you can do it. Well, the worst thing you can ever say to me, you know, is that I can't do something. Because <laughs> if you tell me that I can't do something, I'm going to do it. Yeah. That's the worst thing you can ever say to me is to give me a direct challenge like that. But I set about listening to the song. And within every aspect of music, there are spaces. And these little spaces allow you to move. So I listened to the song, I listened to the rhythm, and I saw that there was a lot of space for me to move. And everything just came together. I think the inspiration of knowing that they set me a challenge, what I had been through, my, my musical career and my development and my life, just all came together. And it just accumulated in that particular song, which now goes on to define me as an artist, there's no place I can go without singing this song. Well, you've certainly done that song justice, I have to say. Thank you very much. You've worked, obviously, as a reggae artist for many, many years. Which labels and producers have you worked with? My first record label was Merger Record Label. I was there for a period of two and a half years. I then moved to Fashion Record Label in Clapham. I was there for a year and a half. And then I started working for the engineer of Fashion Records, which was Gussie P. And he set up his own record label. And I was with Gussie P for 10 years. I then moved from Gussie P to Joe G's. From Joji's to Stingray, from Stingray to Mafia and Fluxy, from Mafia and Fluxy to DH Records, back to Stingray, back to Gussie P. I've, I've just moved around in a musical family circle, never going too far away. Besides your extensive singing career, you've also worked as a carer for a number of years. When did you get involved in that type of work and how long have you been doing that? I've been doing care work from, would say, the year of 1995. It's the kind of work that I enjoy doing. I had no idea that that would be my vocation in life, looking after people, but it seems to come quite naturally to me. Um, there are certain aspects of that job that my friends said that they could never, ever do. But I found myself pulled towards this vocation in life as being a carer. And also knowing that you have to have more than one thing to fall back on. I, I didn't want to be one of those singers that just relied on the income of singing. And then when that didn't pan out, well, what are you going to do? I was never going to be any good at using my hands. But helping people was something that just came natural. And all aspects of caring, it didn't matter whether it was end of life, whether it was cancer, whether it was Parkinson's, dementia, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis. I found it quite easy. It was just something that came quite easy to me. And I thank the Lord that I'm still here 2020 and I'm now I'm helping people get through this coronavirus. And here I am. What are your current views on the coronavirus situation in the UK? Really and truly, um, I, I don't want to get too political, but my views are we're all following the narrative 
that the government are telling us. And it's just up to us to be prudent and to be quite sensible and use our own individual filter as to what information we really think is beneficial. Because there will be information filtering through which really and truly has no bearing on your life whatsoever. So everybody has to be so careful as to what they allow to filter through to them. And it's, it's a challenging testing time for everyone. And people have to be so vigilant, especially with something that's invisible that you can't see. So these are very, very testing times. And I, I, I urge everyone not to be complacent, not to think that there's nothing out there that can't harm you because there is something out there that can harm you, but just to be very, very careful. Has there been a particular life experience you believe changed you as a person fundamentally? You know, you grow up and your parents never allow you. Well, my parents never allowed me to ever see the struggle that they went through. It was only when we became older that we became apparent that, you know, there were certain struggles, but your parents did their best to hide you from these struggles. And I think when I started to lose family members, started to lose friends, fell in love, fell out of love, had my own life experiences, lost my mother, lost my father. All these things come together and they change you as a person, completely change you, uh, as, as well as growing up in England and having to face certain prejudices against you, which you never even asked for. So all these things come together to change you. It changed my views, it changed my voice, it changed the way I write songs, it changed the way I perform songs. So Mike, what are your plans for the future? What is on your bucket list? My bucket list is to be there in front of everyone. I'm not going to stop until everybody knows who Mike Anthony is. I've only just touched the surface. Imagine after all these years, we're in 2020, uh, women that used to come to my concerts have had children and they are now listening to Mike Anthony. So I'm not going to stop until Mike Anthony has reached the potential audience that he's supposed to reach because I don't believe I've reached the audience that I'm supposed to reach yet. There are many more concerts to do, many more records to sing, many more experiences for me to share with the public. So it just goes on and on. But one thing people can be assured of, I don't plan on stopping just, just yet. Well, that's very good to hear. How can people contact you? They can contact me via Facebook. I'm always contacted via Facebook. Uh, certain social media platforms I don't really trust, but Facebook is one of them where they can reach out to me. Uh, if they need to contact me any other way, Facebook is the one to come to. Veteran reggae artist Mike Anthony, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for allowing me to express myself. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe.